So bear with me if I'm coughing or if uh, this level of alto is just distracting to you. I apologize. But let's jump into chapters 11 and 12 of Nehemiah. Let's go ahead and recall where we last left this story, especially because last week so many people were on spring break. We kind of took a different um, plan last week and just studied together. So where we are in this story is that the building of the wall around the city has been concluded, and now the attention for reform has turned to the people of God, right? So what they've done is they've rallied around God's word, and they've been beckoned to rejoice in the faithfulness of God. They were compelled then to feast as a corporate people. That was a, a fun week to study with you guys. So God's people, they allowed his word to move them into obedience, and they, they practiced the Feast of Booths because of that, and then concluded in a time of prayer and confession. And that time lasted three weeks, is what we discovered last week. The people responded to... Uh, the covenant of God by reaffirming their commitment to the God of Israel. So that's what we've gone through. It's been a big couple weeks. It's been this fun progression of a story. And now as we near the end of the story, what you guys have studied this last week is the repopulating of the city. And then we see a wonderful glimpse of how God's people dedicate the finished wall of Jerusalem. The book of Nehemiah would be awesome if it ended at the end of chapter 12. And if you want to just pretend that it does for just today, then you can, because the next week of study is sobering. But God will not change, and that is our gospel hope. So just getting it out there now. 11 and 12 are exciting. They're wonderful. What did you guys see this last week as you studied? Um, Well, we read right away in the beginning of chapter 11 that the leaders were living in Jerusalem. So I'm just going to read those first two verses. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of 10 to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of 10 remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So we see that Besides for these leaders, the rest of the city was uninhabited. It was mostly vacant. We've talked about that before. So to solve this problem, what the leaders decide to do is that they cast lots. They do a lottery system. And one out of every ten families was brought to live within Jerusalem. So you need to ask the question, well, why is that? Why did people not want to live there within the city? And I think your workbooks brought that up. Simply put, it would cost the people a lot to make that move. (coughs) They were living in the countryside, right? They were farmers. So to move into the city of Jerusalem, they would have to leave their agrarian lifestyle to move into a rundown city and start building their own home. And they've just been building this wall. Yet we see there in verse 2 that it says that the people who freely moved or the people who volunteered to move into the city were blessed. That's a sweet verse, and we don't have to go any further into the text to see a sweet reminder for our own lives. Living as the people of God within the walls of our salvation is often costly for us, isn't it? It often means that we have to leave 
certain aspects of like the settled life. Or we have to uh, abandon this idea of fending for ourselves, like maybe the lifestyle of a farmer would live. And sometimes living as the people of God means we have to make big changes and make it regularly. Being the people of God might mean that we feel like sojourners at times. And we have to um, pick up and move rather than feel settled. Part of living as the people of God sometimes means that that sense of arrival is always eluding us, right? We can never quite get our hands on that sense of arrival that we so crave, that, that peace that we think comes with that. But according to God's word here, we see that when we do this, when we move as the people of God, so to speak, there is blessing, There is blessing being one of the few that takes the narrow road, right? There is blessing in a willing spirit. And as we've seen throughout all these lists in the book of Nehemiah, the census of the city of God is a list on which we should long to see our names. I thought, of course, of of people who I've watched do this in my life. And uh, an older woman at the church saw in this text the sweet example of the people who started the Church of Veritas. Right? People left their settled life, one even within this own room, like left a settled <coughs> life to come and start something that was going to be exhausting to start. People moved from Ames and other areas to start a church out of, out of nothing, <laughs> huddle around God's word and see what happens. And now here we are eight years later and we've continued to be inspired by those examples. People who have moved to Cedar Rapids, China, and Minneapolis. And now we are in the town that we get to actually build a a literal church building. But this text also just punched me in the gut with conviction because one of my biggest idols is comfort. And on the, on the heels of that idol is the sense of arrival. On the, on the Enneagram personality test, I am a hardcore achiever. I don't know if anyone else is. I can guess that a couple of you might be achiever. Part of that is that I'm always moving toward a goal. I'm incredibly goal-oriented. And I want to arrive. Guys, I have major sin struggles with this. I love I love comfort, which means I want everyone to be at peace with me. I love to feel success and accomplishment. And so I like the idea of settling in in a place and building my own little kingdom. When this text just convicted me that I need to always have a willing spirit to not measure accomplishment like the world does, build my own little farm, stay in my comfy little home, but to be willing to move that the people of God would grow, that the kingdom of God would grow. You know that saying, if not for the grace of God, there go I. What I see from this text and what my heart prayed this morning was, if not for the grace of God, there stay I. Sometimes staying is actually the biggest sin in my own life. I just want to stay where I am in my comfort zone, using the gifts that I feel most comfortable using, And yet I hear God inviting me 
in, in with the people, further in, closer to him, closer in communion with him. If not for the grace of God, there stay I. It's sad to say that I think I would have to be on the lottery list. I don't know if I would have been one of the people who volunteered to just willingly go in and take the harder life to live among the rubble that sin often creates. I'm going to close this door real quick. So as we move on now in the scripture, what did you guys what did you guys read in that next chunk? So starting in 11:3 all the way through 12:26, we found yet another list of names. Who was Mumbling horrible things about me under their breath this week. Are you getting me more names? Guys, I'll be honest. I was like, what? What in the world? What is there to teach on this? So I want to give credit where credit is due. I got a lot of help this week from a group of women through the Gospel Coalition who did a lot of study on the book of Nehemiah. So a lot of what I'm sharing started from some insights that they showed me. But what we see here in this description of names is, um, it's the people who, who lead out in moving into the city. So what we see first is that the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin are mentioned. And you guys probably noticed throughout these chapters, we see a lot of this talk about Judah and we see David's name. I don't know if we've seen David's name before this week, but he gets mentioned several times here. So both the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin were part of the southern kingdom. So after David, there was Solomon and then Solomon's sons, within them, the kingdom of God split into the northern and southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is where David ruled, okay? David is the king who received the promise that he would always have a son sitting on the throne. And what we need to know to understand this context, mostly, hi, no, that's all right, come on in. Okay, what we see is that the southern kingdom of the two kingdoms was the one that held closer to God's law. Okay, the southern kingdom is the one who um, who held to the sacrificial system and who had more of a remnant of faith, a, a people that wanted to to stay with God, although it wasn't fully. So that is what I want us to notice right away: Judah and Benjamin. So it was David's kingdom that received the promise. And when we see David's names through this chapter, and when the people of God heard about David, what they were realizing is that God has stayed faithful to his covenant that he gave to David. So what he has done is he has preserved David's line through the season of exile. Here the people are coming back, and we see that the promise has been fulfilled to David. And we mentioned a couple weeks ago, it's Zerubbabel. That is the placeholder for David's line. So when you guys see Zerubbabel in this text and in the census, he is the one who has come from David's line. He is that one when we see his names, we say, oh, okay, he's in the kingly line. God is preserving his people and, and hinting at a king to come forward. Secondly, after Benjamin and, and Judah, we see that um, the rest of this text is talking about the priests and the Levites. We've heard priests and Levites already in these chapters, but those are the, the priests are those of the family of Aaron. Okay, They would serve as the mediator between God and his people, the go-between between God and his people, almost like the peacemaker. And then there was the Levites more broadly, and those were, just, those were the temple workers, the people who served... Um, 
the people who taught God's word, okay? And most of these names are about those um, Levites. Why is this significant? Well, let's ask the question. Let's, let's review. What has been rebuilt so far in our first, seven, our first six weeks of study? What's been rebuilt? Well, we saw it started with the wall, right? The literal wall. The mounds of rubble have been restored to a wall encircling the city of Jerusalem. Then through the opposition to that wall, we saw that the faith of Nehemiah and the people was built, right? Remember when we asked that question, God, why would you bring opposition Nehemiah's way when everything was going so well? He was getting favor. He was getting yeses for everything. And then opposition comes. That's when we paused for a moment and said, ah, oh, it's more than a wall. God is building his people's faith. Then Nehemiah halted the literal building of the wall, jumps off the wall to tend to the issue of unity among God's people. He stops the mistreatment of them. And we saw that the covenant was renewed. So the list is long. What has been rebuilt? Well, lots of things. What's happening in these two chapters is that the renewal is of the sacrificial system. What gets rebuilt is the temple system. It gets up and running again. That's why they take the time to tell us about all these Levites and all of these priests. What we have to understand within chapter 11 and 12 is that the temple was the focus of their covenant with God. The temple was the place of worship and sacrifice. It was the very nucleus of their spiritual life. So I feel like we need to take some time to talk about this. This might be, talking about the temple might be review for some of you. If you were part of our study last week or last semester, or if you've done it before. Um, but some of, the, some of the sweetest scriptures, in my opinion. So let's go back. Recall from Exodus, some of the stories of our childhood, probably, that God told his very young people who had just been slaves, that he wanted them to build a sanctuary for him, that he might dwell among them. And he gives these instructions to Moses to build a tabernacle or a sanctuary. Essentially, it was a tent. And he, what he is saying to them, I, I want to live with you. I am moving into town. I am going to set up camp among you. This was mind-blowing to the people, to the young Israelites, it was mind-blowing. He was saying, them, saying to them, I'm not going to stay high and lofty. I'm not going to stay far off. Think about that context. Had these people heard from God for 400 years when they were slaves in Egypt? No, they hadn't. And so here God comes. He says, I'm not going to stay distant. I'm going to become imminent. I'm going to come near. God is saying, I will restore and rebuild that closeness that was lost all the way back in Eden because of sin. So that's the first mention of this whole temple system. Hundreds of years before this. That's where it starts. So in designing the temple, what God shares through Moses is that I'm going to teach you, children, how you should approach me. Okay, Not with carelessness. Don't be frivolous when you approach me, but come with fear. Come with respect. And so what we saw in that tabernacle and then later in the temple is that there was courtyards to the temple. So starting on, on, the most, on the outermost, anyone could come into the outermost courtyard, even foreigners. And then within that, there was a second courtyard that I think it was called the women's courtyard eventually, but that's where any Jew could come 
anyone who was um, biologically in the people of God, they could come into that courtyard. But then the next one was only for Jewish men and workers at the temple. That's where they would bring their sacrifice. So they would bring a heifer, they would bring a goat, they would bring a bird. If they were poor, maybe they would just bring grain. And they would come and they would give their offerings to the priest and they would atone for their sins. There was an altar in that courtyard, an altar made of bronze. And that's where... Uh, they would get atonement for their sins. Then you would go further in, and it was the front room of the tabernacle and later the temple. That was where, if you remember, you would see the table for showbread. That's where you would see the lamp stand made of pure gold. And then that's where you would see the altar of incense. Only the priest could go in there. No common Jew, not even a man, could go in there. That was only the priest. And then there was even one more room. Further back, tucked further back, we're now like three, three, four rooms in, it was the most holy place. Who recalls? Who is allowed in there? Who, who within the Levites? The great high priest. One priest was allowed in there. And even then, he was only allowed in one day of the year, the Day of Atonement. In the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. And that's where God's Shekinah glory rested. That's where God's very presence was for the people. This tabernacle, this temple, it was designed to point the people back to Eden, to the beauty and the glory of Eden. And also it pointed them to the future, to the future city of God. You read descriptions in Revelation that actually connect with the description of Eden, which then is connected to the descriptions of the tabernacle and the temple design. This tabernacle, in the years of the Exodus, actually traveled around with people. That's why it was a tent. It fit into their nomadic life. It was God saying, I'm with you. I'm going to move with you. It was King David's son Solomon, though, once they were settled here in the city of Jerusalem, that he built a permanent temple, a much grander, much more beautiful and rich version of this tabernacle. But now comes our context, our story. What happened to that temple? Well, it got burned down. It got destroyed by the Babylonians, just as the prophet Jeremiah foretold what happened. So in our text this week, now we see like this is a big deal. The temple system is up and running again, and the people once again have a temple. The work that Zerubbabel started several decades earlier is now completed, and now they have workers for it. So they have priests, and they have Levites, and they're getting organized. Why is this a big deal? Well, it's saying, people, you can again commune with God. What good is a wall to protect the people of God if within that wall there is no communion with him? Right? We've kind of looked at this question before. What good is it to have a wall to protect us from enemies on the outside if we're enemies within? What good is it to have this nice set-up place if within we have no way to hear from God, to approach God? I mean, without this communion, without this temple system, these people, these Jews, are nothing more than a holy huddle. They're nothing more than just a Christian country club, right? This was wonderful for them. This was something to celebrate, and celebrate they will. But with our perspective, let's take a moment, let's be a Debbie Downer and actually realize that 
even though their sacrificial system is restored, they still have incredibly limited access to God. Right? We don't have time to go through all of the rituals and all of the cleaning and, and all of the rules there was to approach God, to go into that temple. Well, is this not another beautiful example from the book of Nehemiah? The book of Nehemiah points us to a much grander story of God. So zooming out at this time, hi Trey, we hear you, all, all while reading this in context, right? We stay tethered to the original context of this story, and then we zoom out. And what we see is that our rebuilding, our restoration is far greater. It's something to celebrate all the more because our rebuilding came with a new covenant and a new sacrificial system. And a lot of you guys know this, but let's hear it again. See, where Jesus, he was not just our great high priest, the mediator between us and God. He also became the spotless lamb as he put himself on the altar of the cross and spilled his blood. He became the very temple himself as he tabernacled, set up camp in human flesh. Man, guys, remember the scene of Nehemiah walking through the torn down city in the dark of night? The rubble was so bad that he could not pass with his animal under him. He had to get off. Think of how devastating that was. How much more devastating was the tearing down of the temple of Jesus' body as he was beaten, scorched, pierced, and wounded for my transgressions? So how much, therefore, greater is our joy in our rebuilding? Because our great high priest was not just a man like Ezra or Joachim or the other high priests we saw this week, but he was also God. He was able to understand our every weakness, yet was without sin. And now we are ushered into the very presence of God, rather than staying far off in the women's stinking courtyard. Right? We get to come near, and we get to behold the glory of glories that used to be held within that dark innermost room, only accessed one day a year. The glories of glories, the Shekinah glory of God, the presence of God has bursted forth everywhere. We now get to behold him everywhere. How much greater our joy now, us, the people of God, as we get to approach the throne of grace with confidence through the blood of Jesus. How do those good gospel images from the Old Testament compel us to live differently this week in the middle of March? There's so much there, but what landed on my heart this week is I need to relish in this intimacy of how very close I can be with God. What that actually means is that I need to not let somebody else be my mediator for God. I need to make sure that I am treasuring the very presence of God rather than letting famous preachers speak to me about the word of God or commune for me. I need to get direction from my life by being on my knees and having my face in this word rather than just dialing into a podcast or a pastor or a church staff. 
I should not stay far off, letting there be this in-between. But I need to come near to him because the nearness cost him his very son. But it's mine to have and it's yours to have. So this week, don't stay far off. Let's not stay in those courteous professional courtyards, but let's come near, messy, sincere, authentic, and needy for him and find that he's enough for us. That's what we can see in these lists of names is that this sacrificial system which, in which promises were made, hey, people of God, you can commune with God. That was the promise that was made. The New Testament, we see the promise was kept. And we are just the recipients of these good promises, right? We just go like this and receive it. So now let's turn to the party of chapter 12. I love this. Let's look with excitement at the party described from 1227 through 43. So it just starts like this. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And it, and it starts to describe what, what they did for the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. So what they start with is it says that the, the Levites, the priests, they purified themselves and the people and the wall. This probably meant some ceremonial washing. Um, and what it says is that they formed two choirs. So I had to read this lots of times to understand what was going on here. And I wonder if some of you did too. So here's what happens. Just imagine this with me. So they formed two choirs. So this is like old school Jerusalem meets like high school musical and music van and newsies. Okay, this is like the scene of a musical. And what happens is that one choir, so they probably have hats on, right, with tall feathers, and they're walking like this. And so one is led by Ezra, and one is led by Nehemiah, fitting, right? What, they, what it says is that they walk atop the wall, they start in different directions, and they end, I think it said at the water gate, right? They end near the temple, and, and they, like, form this parade, okay? So if this is a party, it is a parade. They pretty much encircle the whole city of Jerusalem with this parade. How climactic for it to end at the temple. This is so powerful. Here they are walking on top of the wall that they had built together because the hand of God was upon them. The people of God, they are marching and they are singing in great numbers on the wall. It made me think of, especially because David was mentioned in these scriptures, a couple sweet psalms that David had previously written. He said in Psalm 18, For by you, God, I can run upon a troop. By my God, I can leap over a wall. Later, he says, God is my strong fortress. He sets the blameless in his way. He makes my feet like hind's feet and sets me on high places. Okay, ladies, picture this with me. Go to ancient Jerusalem with me. There we are, and we're with each other, and we're with our families and our church, 
and, and we're there and it's busy and there's a lot of energy going on and maybe we're down there and our necks are kind of cranked back looking up at these choirs that are on top of the wall. And maybe you actually want to move with them. And so you pick Ezra's choir and you're kind of pushing your way through and you're shoulder to shoulder with the people of God. You're jogging along. What an amazing revival you would have been present for. What is it that you and I are looking at as we're scurrying around the city of Jerusalem? We are looking at the faithfulness of God. A faithfulness throughout generations. A faithfulness described in his word that you had just heard and described in the new home that you were building within those walls. A faithfulness that had recently urged you to live in a tent, to live in a booth for a week. A faithfulness that then prompted you to put dust and earth on your face to fast and mourn and grieve as you confess your sin. And a faithfulness and a mercy that prompted you to sign a covenant. If you were there, if I was there, looking up at these choirs and listening to these choirs on this day of dedication, what is it that you would be looking at? Not just a wall, but God who is himself a mighty fortress for his people. I know that they had their own songs. Maybe they were singing some of David's psalms that day. But I couldn't help but think if I was there, in my horrible raspy voice today, I would start singing the lyrics from Martin Luther. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. And I would move along as the choir moved, and I would say, Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. And maybe my mind would be going through the last 50-some days of this crazy adventure with God. And I would think about all of that opposition that Nehemiah had faced and that we as a people had faced, all that opposition that we had endured. And then maybe I would sing the next line, of a mighty fortress, and I would say, for still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal, and I would think of Sanballat and Tobiah and all of those ways that they tried to discourage and deceive and distract Nehemiah and the people. And I would say, did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing. And as I would jog along and maybe be shading my face from the bright sun, would I think of the irony as those people are on top of the wall that those ancient foes, darkness, the enemy, evil, Sanballat and Tobiah, they were the ones who said way back at the beginning, not even a fox could stand on top of that wall. Remember when they said that? Not even a fox could go up on this. Don't even try to rebuild these walls. Because if a fox jumped on there, it would crumble. Your work is impossible. It's insignificant. It is weak, they said. But because the mighty hand of God was on this people, 
restoring them from the inside out. Here, the people of God are on top of this wall, proclaiming how faithful he has been. They are worshiping him. What a powerful experience that would have been to be there in ancient Jerusalem, to be part of a revival, to be part of a parade that was evident, that made evident Yahweh's strength as he did this very great work. What a mighty fortress is our God. And then the text ends, pulling our feet back to the ground, right? In this last part of chapter 12, subtitled Service at the Temple, what we see is it says, On that day men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the town. For Judah rejoiced over the priest and the Levites who ministered. So what we see here is that these people began to organize a system for the care of the temple and the temple workers according to the law. So they start to distribute the work. And maybe for those of you in here who are super organized in type A, you're breathing again because you're like, oh my word, all those worship leaders, and you know there was just craziness and no orders. Anybody watching the clock? Where's the budget? Well, here it is, people. Everything's going to start getting organized here. What can we understand from this? What do we need to understand here? They, they get off the wall. They get their feet back on the ground. And what this reminds us is that most of the days of our life are not like the parade day. They're not like the day where they dedicated the temple and had a huge celebration. Most of our days are not spent in high excitement, high emotion revival, is it? Most of our days are in routine. Most days living as the people of God within the secure walls of our salvation just fall into good routine. We have to work. We have to tend to our health. We have to tend to our family and friends. We can't just parade around atop all the world, the world's responsibilities, right? However, what we can do is we can allow these times of revival to carry us into what is a daily and weekly system of worship. What we see at the end of chapter 12 is that the order of the church is important. It has to be built around God's word around his law, um, ordering our life around the church and around God's people is important. It is crucial for us to find a way to bring revival-type excitement, motivation, energy, and joy into Monday through Friday where we find a cadence of faithfulness. Right? We find a way to walk day in and day out holding to God's word to become a steady serviceman for God's church, for the people of God, and for the kingdom of God. This is where the most of our obedience in life will come from. 
is in between the huge things God asks of us, the huge walls, the fantastic feats. It's in between those that we become women of God. It's in forgiving when we don't want to forgive. It's in smiling when we want to frown. It's in not holding a grudge that we've been holding on to for so long. Right? Obedience is washing dishes and just showing up, as Mark always says. And it's in those times, it's in those days, when we walk graciously through annoyance or disruptions or delayed gratification, it's there that we build a muscle of faith that allows us to jump up on the wall and celebrate when it's time, that allows us to silence Tobiah and Sanballat when we need to. These are the important days for us. These are our mundane days of faithfulness, as Luther says it. So let's pray. God, thank you so much for providing a temple system for us. Thank you so much for laying out a way for us to be in relationship with you, for not staying far off, but coming near. Thanks for the beautiful ways that the Old Testament lays out these promises that so often pointed to the New Testament, to Jesus and to us. Help us to believe and to hold on to your promises for us. God, I pray for these women that we would be weekly worshipers, that we would be committed both to our churches and also just to praying in the secret closets of our life and for reading your word, whether we feel like it or not, for seeking you when energy is, is low. And Lord, we know that we will get to anticipate you in many, many revivals, many dedications. But until you bring us back to that time, may you find us faithful. God, we praise you that you are indeed a mighty fortress. And within you, we are saved. In your name we pray, amen.